0: Hello, my name is Ruth Platt, and you're listening to CinePod, the cinematography
1: podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a programme about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts... Ben Rock, and Ilya Friedman.
2: Hey, Ben. How's it going? You know, honestly, we've had better weeks. Uh, this week, we lost one of our own, and it sucks.
3: That's really true. And, of course, we're talking about the entirely preventable and fatal shooting that happened on the movie *Rust*. Now, uh, yeah. be- before we get into this, and I want to try to keep our... our, our we could easily talk for a very long time about this, but but I don't want to. We have a whole show. We, we, we have a bunch of things going on. So we're going to try and, uh, I think, do appropriate justice to talk about it here. But but really, we've got a great show today. Who, who's on the show today, Ben?
2: Uh, Ruth Platt, the amazing director of the new horror movie, Martyr's Lane, which is on Shudder. And it's a great atmospheric ghost story with two young girls at the center and uh, just brilliantly directed I think they were eight or nine years old both of them And it's it's gorgeous. And uh, we've been talking to a few people outside of cinematographers specifically lately, and it's great to talk to directors sometimes and kind of break down their visual approach and also their career. And I think a lot of our listeners, you know, a lot of them are cinematographers, but many of them are people who are getting into filmmaking or thinking about getting into filmmaking. I think it's good to
3: hear a perspective from a director. I agree. I think it's great to, to mix it up and get some directors into these conversations so this that's wonderful I'm not, I actually wasn't part of that interview so I'm really looking forward to to listening to it. She's brilliant and uh, you know it is that
2: Halloween season so please check out Martyr's Lane if you can. Uh, if you can check out Shudder, I, I know I talk about Shudder a lot on here and I have full disclosure worked for Shudder once but I really do think it's an amazing streaming service and I was already a subscriber long before I ever worked for them and I feel like they, they have a lot of like new cool genre films and this is one of them if you like horror movies but you're not you're afraid of seeing something that's horribly gory or graphically violent this is not that this is a very thoughtful interesting introspective uh, ghost story and I think a lot of our listeners will dig it. So uh, yeah I, I think that both of us were shocked when I think the news broke on Thursday we're recording this on Sunday about the onset death on Rust and it really upset me a lot and I don't know if I uh, did myself a service or a disservice but I kind of sat down and had like a little tweet storm but I've been walking around and thinking about why we use blanks on set for a long time because it is not necessary. It's not necessary
3: at all. I I think that we've We've spoken about this, uh, you know, prior to this tragedy uh, on a number of occasions because we, you know, one of the things we've, we've talked about, uh, sure, plenty is um, hours and safety and, and, and all the other sort of uh, elements.
2: Yeah. And we should say, by the way, like accidents like this are outrageously rare. You know, what's common people getting hearing loss because they're around a lot of blank fire. There are injuries that are not newsworthy that you get from having blanks fired near your face all the time,
3: uh, and and I also think that this brings up the just the larger discussion about uh, working conditions and rushing and safety oh, and, for and, sure. and cutting corners. Uh, the first job that I ever worked on, I got a, a minor concussion, and it's like you know that's. Yeah, oh, no. it, was, it was like, hey, welcome to the industry. <laughs> I was getting paid two twenty-five an hour, and I ended up with a concussion, and I had to go to the emergency room. And you know, let me tell you, I learned really quickly uh, about something I, I didn't know about, which was you know the twenty-year-old version of myself. I was you know twenty or maybe twenty-one. Uh, they sent me to the, to the emergency room, and uh, when it came time to figure out how to pay for all of it, there I was like, oh well, it's going to get covered by workers' comp. I was on the job, and then I ended up talking to like an adjuster, and they were like, well. According to what production tells us, is that you're an independent contractor. So uh, this is all on you. This is not on the production. The production says you're an independent contractor. So you got hurt on the job, and uh, now you're gonna have to pay this bill. It was uh, it was a real it was a real wake up oh. call for me. So,
2: I have a story too, not unlike that. I was probably 19, maybe 18, and it was in the early days of Universal Studios Florida and a company that is still in business. I'm not gonna name them had a bunch of us out there building a set at Universal Studios Florida and I could not have been more excited it was the first time I'd ever set foot inside a professional sound stage you know at the time I probably weighed about 130 pounds soaking wet so I could get under this stage that they were building and screw stuff together and I was there working my butt off all day and a giant set piece fell over and hit me and uh, it wasn't like a concussion kind of thing, but it was like oh, suddenly I had kind of a stiff neck and you know what they did? They sent me home hmm. and I think they were paying like eight bucks an hour or something. And I don't remember the name of the people who, who did this. I don't really remember anything about it. But to me, you know, it's like I was too young and dumb to know that I probably should have gone to the hospital and gotten checked out. Like it was like this giant stack of flats or something just kind of that hadn't been secured fell over and hit me. And I was it wasn't even something I was working on. It was just happened to be in the same soundstage. And again, this, this is a company that if I said their name, you'd be like, Oh yeah, I know exactly everything about that company. Mm. And, uh, it's total bullshit because they back then and now have real money to spend on stuff like this. But of course they were all gold rushing into Orlando at the time for the plentiful non-union crew And, you know, I'm sure that whoever sent me home was like, I don't want to get in trouble because it was probably their fault.
3: And, you know, I think it's important to bring up these sort of, you know, our own personal experiences, because your experience, my experience early on, this is not unique. This is far from unique that, you know, a lot of people get injured. uh, uh, Sadly, some some people die and it's mostly entirely preventable and there's no reason for the type of accidents and and deaths that occur and of course we're talking about uh helena hutchins who we're 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 facebook friends i believe we have met in passing a couple times uh over over the years she and i share probably 100 friends uh on on facebook and stuff and so going onto facebook right now is a really uh it's a it's sort of a gut-wrenching experience just because as we're speaking right now, there's actually a candlelight vigil going on in Burbank at, at local 80. Um, and oh, it's like, I, and I saw some of the photos that are coming in from that and it's just an incredible outpouring of people and support. And I'm really glad to see the industry doing that. And I think just recently when we were talking about uh, union contracts and stuff like that, we talked about, you know, this industry and, and what it sort of toll it, it takes on people. But, um, Man, it's doom scrolling for me. I I, I really don't, I can't, uh, I can't go onto Facebook and I can't scroll. One notch without another outpouring of of support for her family and uh, or people posting articles about what happened And a good friend of ours uh, someone who um, I I won't I won't mention uh, their name But they are directly connected to the the camera operator who was working on the set at the time and he filled me in on a bunch of uh, information to uh, you know uh, basically separate at least you know give me some fact from fiction and that doesn't make it any better, <laughs> no. And and I don't even want to get into all that, but it doesn't make it any better to hear exactly like how terrible this is. And I'm sure that this will all come out uh, eventually. But what I think it it's just uh, it is worth saying is is that you know um, it's fucked up. It is is so yeah. fucked up, and um, it's look. super fucked up. And I have to say, in 2021,
2: that I'm given to understand this was a relatively low budget movie, seven million. No, that's actually not even, I mean, it's low budget, but it's high enough budget that you could hire a real armorer.
3: It's high enough Uh, budget that you could, you know, pay your crew high enough budget that you could get them hotel rooms, high enough budget that you could. Yeah. yeah. I've I've
2: heard a lot of the abuse stuff going on on that, on that set and how the crew
3: were treated. You could have safety meetings. You could actually have, you know, all the stuff that should be going into it.
2: I just kind of feel like in 2021, why are we bringing real guns onto set and firing blank loads when you can get. Outrageously good replicas, like airsoft, is is the one everyone uses. There's a number of different companies that sell extremely convincing replicas, and then you can create or you can buy rather inexpensively your own library of muzzle flashes that you can add. And this was sort of my Twitter rant was sort of about this. It's like there's no reason, and even in the most practical sense, when it goes perfectly well with blank fire. It's one of those things that for the benefit that you get out of it, it eats so much more time because every time you're doing a scene that's got blank fire, you're going to have a safety meeting. It's going to take 30 minutes. You've just kissed away 30 minutes every time you have a scene where there's any blank fire. Now, if you're firing five blanks, that's as many safety meetings as it is if you're firing one blank, if, as long as it's in the same scene. But it slows everything down. You have to pass out earplugs to the whole crew. You have to put up plexiglass and or plywood around the set. It's fucking bullshit. I mean, honestly, it, it, it's bullshit. And as a filmmaker, again, pretending everything went perfectly smoothly. I've been lucky. One of the armors I've worked with before is a guy named Charlie Parrish. Charlie is fucking Amazing. He's on it and a safety nerd like an armor should be. And I don't want to see Charlie lose a job at the same time. When I made my movie and I had 15 days, I would not be surprised if you told me that seven hours of that shoot, so like more than half a day, might have been spent on safety meetings. And I would rather have that half a day back to shoot other stuff, which you could do if you were just using a prop gun that posed no one any danger
3: yeah yeah uh, one one of the things that really bothers me is all the the mentions in all the mainstream media about prop gun prop gun prop gun it really it, they're wh- not prop guns it's a they're, gun they're not it's gun it's a real gun and that is the the big disconnect i think with the public out there and what goes on the sets they're they're real guns with blank well, loads. people also and think
2: if, that like if if I point a blank at you and, and, and I'm like five there's, no, away that from there's face, no, no danger and yeah. that's absolutely false yeah. yeah. too yeah. and, and a blank will fuck you up a oh, blank yeah. is I mean like all that stuff you see coming out the front of the gun in the muzzle flash it's that's traveling all coming out fast. Really
3: supersonically the Did, bang is breaking the sound barrier there is different levels of loads too: quarter loads half loads there's different amounts yeah. of, uh, of power you know uh I, All of this I, can you know, if, if the money exists for people to rent real guns to use in production, the money certainly exists for a company to go out there and uh, make a prop that actually does what it's supposed to do. And I tell you, they're going to clean up because uh, I, I think that thousand percent. I, yeah, I mean, I,
2: somebody I mean, airsoft should just figure out a way to have like a spring loaded something or other inside the airsoft gun that, that gives it some recoil. But I've never been pulled out of a movie because the guns didn't have realistic enough recoil. And and I also feel like for anyone who says that like VFX are expensive, it's like, okay, so think about the 30 minutes of downtime on your set and hiring an armorer. So that's like a full time person on your set anyway. Then you're going to you're going to stop work for 30 minutes and have a safety meeting. You're going to pass out all all these air plugs. You've got to buy them, blah, 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 versus hiring one person to do this in post.
3: I'm, I'm going to interject right here, and I know that, you know, for all our listeners, you essentially just got a Cliff Notes version of the rant that Ben had on Twitter in the last uh, couple of days, and that that rant got you quite a bit of attention, actually. Uh, you got contacted by, like, Reuters and yeah. was the BBC. Sky News, BBC, yeah. yeah. A whole bunch of people wanted to talk to you because you went on a, a very detailed rant about how there doesn't need to ever be a real gun on set, ever, and... I would say, at the very least, it should be a supreme rarity. Yeah. Like okay, You've so got to have some
2: kind of crazy the specific thing you're going for. Be on a
3: gun for some thing or reason or And, and you know, honestly, if you're
2: doing close-ups, it, like if you, let's say you want to have bespoke muzzle flash that isn't from a library so no one will pick out the one frame of oh muzzle God. flash on yeah. your on your stuff, frame. then yeah. hire, a, hire a unit to go film it with real guns in a safe way. I mean, there's nothing wrong. I'm not... I'm not an anti-gun person. I just, this is like a workplace safety thing. And I just, there's no reason for anyone to die for
3: this because there's no reason to do it at all. Yeah. A hundred percent. Anyway, well, Ben, we could easily rant into these microphones until our, our listeners ears bleed. But um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to table this conversation. We can talk about it, some more, you know, maybe in, uh, in, in short ends or, or in future episodes as more stuff goes on. Well, and, and, and I
2: will be revisiting this a little bit in my short end, but it will be with uh, practical advice for someone, anyone who's thinking about doing stuff with guns, like other very safe ways to get the gun effects you want done.
3: Yeah. And we'll, we'll probably touch base as the the story unfolds a little bit more, but for the most yeah. part, actually it's out there and everywhere. And if you're in these circles, you're, you're probably overwhelmed each time. I feel like some of these terrible tragedies happen. Uh, there's a little bit of reform that happens in the industry a little bit. Yeah. There's a little bit, there's more consciousness. I mean, there's, but there, I feel like
2: since the last time there was a high profile shooting on set, which would have been Brandon Lee in 1993, I feel like In that time, the digital revolution has become so ubiquitous that there's that that now it's just like obvious to anyone with with eyes that we don't need to do this anymore. And I feel like, you know, I've had several people say, "Why are we even still using blanks today?" And I'm and the only answer that I really have is because we always have. I think that people move away from change. You know, I had tried to convince a producer wants to let me use VFX uh, muzzle flashes and stuff and was talked out of it, and
3: I, and reg- and I regret it. I mean, uh, it's time for the industry to grow up in some ways that it, it probably never thought it would. It probably thought it would just continue on the same way forever, but no, it, it, it really can't continue the, the way it's been, yeah. so. Uh, so anyway, let's get
1: to the interview. Here is
3: uh, Ruth Platt.
1: The Cinematography Podcast Interview.
2: I am here, I believe transcontinentally, you're in England, correct? That's right. With director Ruth Platt, uh, director of Martyr's Lane, which is currently streaming on Shudder. I watched it just a couple days ago. Just beautiful, beautiful work. So uh, congratulations for getting the film made and getting it uh, you know, released on Shudder. I, I never stopped talking about Shudder on here. I, I love Shudder. So let's start by talking about Martyr's Lane. Uh, it looks like you made it as a short film first. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I did. Well, what happened is I went into development with the BFI, which is the British mm. film Institute in, in the UK. Um, there's, there's very few sources of independent film funding in the UK and the BFI is the main source, basically. So I was really so chuffed to get into development with them after feeling like an outsider, really, in the industry for a long time, making, you know, mm. self-funded movies, shorts and, and, and micro-budget features so i went into development with them it took quite a while in development and uh one of the things they wanted it was they wanted a sort of proof of feature short Mm. so we did that as a sort of condition of trying to get greenlit for the for the feature uh so it was a weird thing really because i had a feature script already and trying to distill or condense a feature (laughs) idea and a feature story into a short usually it's the other way around you know you've got the short the seed of the idea and then you're kind of developing it but this was like try to it, it felt like a, a strange kind of bottleneck <laughs> kind of <laughs> process, you know. But it was good. It, we established the tone a little more. I think that's that was what they wanted. They, they you know, it has two kids in the leads. It's genre, but establishing the tone of the genre was important. And we learned we learnt a lot doing that short. So that's that's how it happened.
2: Well, and ghost movies are always a fun thing. And I feel like uh, no uh, offense to James Wan, I love his work, but I feel like we're awash with those kinds. You know the insidious kind of ghost stories and you know what you've made is something that maybe it, it, it's a lot more contemplative and maybe reminds me a little more of like one of my personal favorites peter medak's the changeling but i'm curious like what your inspirations were going into it what, what inspired you to make it i know you've you've made other genre films but they were uh, th- this is it is a horror film but it's very quiet it's very com- contemplative it's creepy it gets under your skin it's not you know uh, the, the, there's no uh, rampaging monsters or anything
0: it started off a little bit more horror i think and a bit more visceral mm. and perhaps with alternative or, or additional points of view and through the development we realized it had to go through the you know through the eyes of this one child then you have a responsibility when you're putting the whole performance and the whole perception of the whole thing through the, through the eyes of this and the shoulders of this 10 year old girl and so that's probably what shaped it towards a more under the skin unsettling ghost story because it's about what she you know i always think she's like a little living ghost it's about her being ignored and invisible in this adult house and what she picks up on and what she doesn't and how she perceives things and her nightmare world and her imagination and, and all these things come into play. So that naturally and organically took it into a different place tonally. I was a little bit worried about it. I think, you know, it either works for you or it doesn't. Some people love the James Wan and the, the, the
2: nothing wrong with it. I mean, th- those are all fun, you know, it's a great
0: play. There's a place yeah. for it. Definitely. You know, I love, yeah. it. I love m- m- so much of genre. Um, but I think, I felt it was quite high risk going this way with this film, but it felt inevitable with putting two children in the leads. Um, I didn't want to have that kind of exploitative process with children where you're kind of putting an adult stamp on children and using mm. them for the for the genre, you know, in a gratuitous way. So I felt a responsibility to sort of get inside her her, her character and, and, and to position it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of uh, influences, I'm really ashamed to say i haven't seen the changeling and i really need to see that because someone else it's
2: so great
0: i, I must see that i'm going to see that this week thanks for that tip someone else mentioned mm. it to me and it's in my head um so there's a film called the spirit of the beehive which is not mm. a horror but it's a uh, it's in that delicate uh, world between genre and art house i guess it's a slightly a ghost story and it's it has two children at the center of it um and it's about a chart it's got some very beautiful naturalistic children's performances but within this slightly strange space of the child's imagination and the, and the child's nightmares and
2: the yeah.
0: sense of the adult world. So that was a big influence, a Spanish film. Uh, uh, there were other Spanish kind of ghost story genre films that had an influence as well. You know, The Devil's Backbone, Guillermo del Toro, oh, The That's
2: so amazing. Both of those yeah. movies. I love Guillermo del Toro, but those are uh, like the two biggest masterpieces from him, those two, and both both centered around kids as well, yeah.
0: They are. And, you know, I think sometimes De- Devil's Backbone is, is slightly lesser known, and I, I just... I just love the Devil's Backbone.
2: Yeah, I mean they're almost companion pieces. Like I want him to make a third, a third chapter in that, in the Spanish Civil War trilogy, Ghost, whatever paranormal fantasy trilogy.
0: And, and yeah, exactly. And I guess because mine's more of a domestic, more centered on this one house, this one family. But you know what I love about his films is that backdrop of the the Civil War, and the, and the real evil is is fascism. Mm-hmm. You know, the the monsters and the ghosts are not are not the bad guys. It's, yeah.
2: <laughs> And uh, let's talk about sort of the visual palette of it, because it has a very stylized look, but not stylized in a way that's distracting in any way. But what were your inspirations and how did you work with your cinematographer to kind of build the look that you created in the film?
0: Yeah, I wanted a slightly timeless feel, so you couldn't quite specify the period. And I had this idea that the house, it was really hard actually finding a house. uh, It's not an autobiographical story, but the setting is slightly autobiographical. I was a kid mm-hmm. growing up in an older family, kind of feeling like I shouldn't be seen or heard and, and, and overhearing and listening and being shut out and going to bed early and and listening on stairs. And that house, that, that setting was a little bit uh, from my own memory. I had this idea that the house is a bit like the mother's brain. So the downstairs is this busy populated daytime uh, ministry where there's lots of people coming and going and there's lots (laughs) of stuff to distract you. And then the nighttime is the subconscious, the unconscious even, the collective unconscious upstairs, dark, long corridors, dark spaces, silence, where the nightmares creep in. And, you know, Leah is rattling around in this space. It's a bit like she's rattling around her mother's head, lost and slightly unseen. Uh, And then other things come into that space. So, we talked a lot about how to create that cinematically and the shots and the, and, the, and the lighting. The lighting was very important, creating this slightly dreamy, luminous kind of nighttime space that, that hovers between the conscious and the subconscious world. And again, I was heavily influenced by the spirit of the beehive in that look, mm-hmm. that cinematic look. So that's, that's what Mark and I discussed. He was very keen to use these Hookspeed um, Pancro lenses, which have quite a retro feel. They're not, they're not that sharp, not that digital. They, they give it a slightly less crisp look. And so I guess there's a slightly retro look to the film.
2: There's something impressionistic about the way you shot it, about the way light sources were placed. You know, like we have light going right into the camera, but it, it wasn't flary in a J.J. Abrams kind of way.
0: Abrams was going to say, it's <laughs> not <The artificial> a... <laughs> Says. <laughs>
2: You know, I mean, I guess those are my kind of impressions of it. And while I'm watching something, uh, a film like this, and I'm so glad you brought up Devil's Backbone. I'm always wondering, too, like, how uh, do you create the environment for children to be able because like getting children who can act is hard and then also like keeping them. F- I, I have a three year old, so I don't even know. I, I can't even begin to think about getting him to focus, to, you know, to the degree that I, I don't know how old your lead was. I would assume she was probably eight or nine or something like that. She was ten, um, yeah, she was ten. Ten, okay. Yeah. I was close. You know, but like how do you keep the boring technical process away from the kids so that they can just kind of live in their imaginations and also read the lines that you wrote and be in character and do all the stuff that they have to do? Is is there did any of the way that you approach the filmmaking of it was it accommodating for the fact that two of your leads were both really young?
0: well the major the major accommodation we had to make was time because you're there's very strict time limits how many hours you can work with children of a certain age and very strict laws around that. So we were very limited in terms of the actual time we had, and that was that was a major <laughs> obstacle really to independent <laughs> filmmaking having two children as your leads so we tried to prep as much as we could you know when they weren't on set and we had a we had a double a, a child who could sit in for them when we're lighting and things like that. but you know for me. You know, I heard that Michael Haneke saw 5,000 kids for the white ribbon and, you know, we, we didn't have the scale or the, or the time or the budget yeah. for that kind of casting process. So we, we saw relatively relatively few kids compared to something like that. But, um, and you, you can tell very quickly when children are, have learned to conceal or perform in a very polished way and when they're not doing that and when they're much more raw and there's a place for them to, to move towards, there's, there's fluidity yeah. and flexibility in what they're doing because they are using their own personality I think it's about empathy and emotional intelligence. And I think, you know, I think all children have that. I think all people have that. But some kids have more access to it and have been more used to using it than, than others and just have a more natural sort of proclivity. And I, I think um, I just, yeah, these two kids, I felt very quickly that I could work with them. And we did try lots of different pairs. They had this chemistry, also these two kids. I think kids, you know, even it doesn't really matter about their age. It's, it's capturing something spontaneous and alive and free. And that's the magic. It's the magic that adult actors have to capture as well. So I don't see children actors because of their age being an issue. I think actually sometimes they can be freer. And I think if I have one regret, it's that we didn't have more improvisi- more time for improvisation and more time for just following them and, and, and experimenting more in their performance uh, you know, away from the script. Because yeah. uh, as soon as you put a script into their mouths, they've got to, the, the, it, there is an adult filter there, you know. So my focus was trying to see how they would, how how would you say this line and maybe changing it if they wouldn't say that. Do you connect with this? How you know, What's your favourite food? What what would you like to say here? What do you, And then what do you think you're trying to get from her here? So instead of looking at a long story arc or a big story arc and putting all that information into their head, which is not how we speak and not how we act or behave we just thought just kept it in the moment you know what, what do you want right now what are you thinking right now what do you want out of her uh, you know what, what is how is she making you feel and just kept it in the moment and when we were setting up you know if they did have to wait around I would just keep them moving keep them breathing playing games keeping them thinking and alive so that there was life inside their mm-hmm. inner life and as long as you've got that before we shot I would always try and get them running around or moving so that they're breathing. And I think as soon as you're breathing, you're not holding on to tension, you're not dead inside, you're not flat. Ah, I've damaged you, a few mics by doing that, <laughs> getting them to <laughs> run around and then the mic's falling on the ground.
2: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it's worth it. Uh, well, and, and you had made another film called The Black Forest that has uh, the kids aren't the leads in that, but there's a lot of kids in it, right? Or there's a lot of child, child performances. Yes. Not-
0: yes, yes. And I worked and- in a similar way with them, yeah.
2: Can you talk about like what kind of preparation, pre-visualization, storyboards, shot lists, or, you know, like what your process is for kind of breaking down a scene to shoot it?
0: Before Master's Lane, I have made, you know, feature films on shorts budgets, basically. So there's never been any time, very little time for prep. Time for prep on this was much shorter than I'd, I'd hoped as well. You know, I dream of that time when you have like, I know two or three weeks for the director of photography to like meticulously plan every shot. That's one thing I would really, it's an ambition I still have yeah. that to achieve. I would love to have that, but a lot of it's quite instinctive. So if you, if you're, if I'm trying to reflect an interior narrative or an emotional narrative, um, you know, I was discussing with Mark how to do that. And we, we talked about our influences and our, our references and, uh, we did, we did storyboard some of the more sort of difficult sequences to shoot. We, we storyboarded, but not everything. So a lot of it had to happen quite quickly, actually. And we had to problem solve some issues. For example, we were supposed to have a drone shot. Uh, that we meticulously planned, and then the drone didn't work in the in the woods, yes. which is something I've never quite experienced. So we we ended up getting a rickshaw and putting the steady cam guy on a rickshaw, and my my lovely grip what? legged <laughs> legged it down the road like 15 times as fast as he could, pushing this rickshaw with the steady cam guy on the rickshaw. You know, so there were like that's um, awesome. Yeah, it, and it was it's a good shot, but you know we had to problem solve an awful lot. Um, and there was, even though it was a bigger budget than I'd ever had, it still felt like a quite a tight budget.
2: They're never big enough. You know, we, we you know, <laughs> it's never going to be big enough. You know, we talk to people who shoot Marvel movies, and they're like, "Yeah, we were on a really tight schedule." And <laughs> it's like, you had everything. Okay. But
0: what <laughs> what, what, I, what I'm glad about is that you know, a lot of the time people say, oh, "Do it and post, it and post, do it and post, post." And I tried to as much in camera as i could so
2: that was a that was a thing that i i really picked up on too like it didn't feel like a movie that had been uh futzed with too much digitally it felt like it was all really there which is which which i appreciate i mean i feel like i feel like it's it it sells better to the camera it looks better it viscerally as a viewer you you accept the reality of it more
0: yeah I, I, yeah, I think, you know, CGI, when it's enhancing something in a very minimal way, is absolutely brilliant. But, you know, that, but I think people are realising that. The industry is realising that now. There seems mm-hmm. to be a shift away from it. But at one point, you know, it was just... I, you just can tell there's something in you that knows it's not real. And there's something very... It, this is such an organic film that I wanted to make sure those sort of moments in the film that, that um, could have been CGI, but hopefully aren't most of them. Um, actually, yeah, all of them were, were as <laughs> organic as possible. And that reads to the human eye in a very different way, I think. So, and also, you know, the producer's like, oh yeah, do it, do it in post, do it in post, haven't got time. But then, you know, post comes along, oh, there's no budget for that. And I'm thank God I did it. Thank God (laughs) I did it in camera, you know, because we would never have done it. Yeah, there's a couple of things that, yeah, we did on camera that I'm so thrilled we found solutions to. And there are other funny little things like, you know, I I cradled a dead fly in another dead creature for quite a long time and then placed it carefully in front of the camera so we, and then like blew it really hard to animate it and people were like, what the hell is she doing? But it works, you know, it, it works.
2: <laughs> you're making a movie.
0: Yeah, I was so chuffed with my little dead fly. She, she looks at a fly and a fly flies off. People are like, well, you're going to have to do that in post or we can't get fly wrangler. So I just found this little dead fly and I preserved it and then I managed <laughs> to, to blow it, to blow it so it kind of took off horizontally. <laughs> I was very pleased with that.
2: That's so much fun. I love hearing stories like that, though. So I'd I'd love to talk a little bit about your career leading up to this, because you have actually a lot of acting credits, but also you've directed, uh, I think, three features and a bunch of shorts. I'm a big genre person, and I love the horror genre, and I love seeing people who execute it well. What drew you to horror? Was that always the direction that you were going in as a filmmaker?
0: No, I mean, so... I'm a little bit sore about the idea that I've made three movies because my, you know, my first two features were were made on shorts budgets, kind of self-funded, mm-hmm. and, and *Mad Lane was like my first funded, supported film. So I kind of feel like it should be my day de- seen as my debut film, really. But, but you know, that was my <laughs> fault. I made features. Um, I just wanted to get out there and prove myself, I think. My my first two shorts were not genre. They were They were dark. They had a dark sensibility to them. But I think... I was feeling quite angry when I made the lesson, uh, not at teenage, <laughs> teenagers, but angry at the at being a woman who had felt outside the industry for so long and, and mm. had two children and felt I just felt very unheard and un, unable to break into the industry. So it was a sort of way of channeling all that anger. So I'm slightly worried that people think I was sort of advocating for torturing teenagers because... That's not what the film's about. The film's about, it's a sort of satire in the education system, really, the broken education system, and it's satire on power. So I worry slightly that people misinterpreted it and take it literally. Um, Storytelling
2: is not necessarily advocacy. <laughs> like you're not making a, a, a PSA about why the behavior in your movie is right. And I feel like there was a wave of movies that that, that movie kind of fits into that went to a, a visceral place, shall we say?
0: Yeah, I worry when it's compared to torture porn because um, I was trying to do something. I mean, to be honest, the film that um, inspired me was Michael Haneke's Funny Games. And I read Brandon Cronenberg- Also quite a
2: visceral film. A very (laughs) visceral
0: film, but what Brandon Cronenberg said was I don't like easy violence. I don't like films where the violence is, you know, bang, 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 gun and bullet. Like, you know, like Deadpool where, you know, it's bang, 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 bullet in the head, ha ha. And it's like, I remember my kids seeing it and I'm thinking, that violence is so easy and glossy and smooth. And and what Brandon Cronenberg said is violence should be difficult to witness and watch and uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to do in the lesson. I was trying to, I was trying to raise some ethical challenges because you know, there is so much gratuitous as violence and it's almost as if there's a lot of teen kind of teenage slasher kind of movie tropes, isn't there? About like beautiful yeah. young bodies being murdered and tortured and all that. And I was trying to say, trying to make that, turn that on its head and say "Look, this is really uncomfortable and really ethically problematic but I'm not sure if all that nuance got got seen
2: (laughs) well I I mean I'm hoping that Martyrs Lane will encourage people to go back and look at your filmography because I do feel like we're in a moment right now uh specifically in the genre world where people are looking for that nuance and they're 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 looking for uh I I feel like 15 years ago, whatever, when, when torture porn was was all the rage in the horror world, as a lifelong horror guy, I never really had a taste for that stuff either. I would always go more for the Martyr's Lane kind of movies, like the supernatural, creepy, you know, think about it later. I mean, I could make an argument for, you know, Dario Argento and and some of that stuff, which was also extremely, sometimes I think leaned into that kind of stuff, but was always so surreal and weird and nightmarish that that it was more like you'd think about what you saw later like it was a terrible nightmare you'd had. But I do think that today people are, are more in the genre world are really looking at the subtle shadings of stuff and the satire and how horror can be used to kind of get a, a, a big idea across. Obviously, you know, probably the most conspicuous example of that is Jordan Peele and everything that he's doing, because like he's making horror movies, including Candyman, which he didn't direct, but he executive produced it. They're definitely kind of not smuggling, but just kind of infusing uh, the genre stuff with some kind of a social mess. So you know, uh, hopefully, people will will go back and look and see that that's what you were doing in that film.
0: I really hope so. Perhaps it was just too oblique and too subtle, um, and didn't have enough of a social message. I mean, I thought it was pretty clear, but I mean, obviously, with, with budgetary constraints as well, we we did put this teacher teaching the the lesson of his dreams in this in this this place, um, and it was it, it, it was very claustrophobic and enclosed in that space for a very long time so obviously if i had more of a budget i would have opened up a little bit more and played with it more narratively but you know i wanted to sort of push that oppressiveness of the education system and play with that satire so i think you know some people have loved it and it's really really reassuring that some people have loved it some people have thought I've I've been saying that teenagers should be tortured. And <laughs> so yeah, it's it's been slightly uh, uncomfortable, I guess. But I hope I hope people will see see it for its its real intentions.
2: And and it's also, funny, it's, actually, not t- to, it's
0: not supposed to denigrate teachers either, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: Uh, Martyr's Lane to me is so accomplished and so well made it's hard for me to believe that I, I mean like I always ask people like oh you went to Sundance oh you won an Oscar was your phone ringing off the hook the next week and the answer is always like not not much more but I do wonder like what happens when you release something that I, I feel like f- from an objective standpoint anyone could look at this and see this is accomplished work and this is someone who really knows what they're doing like how has it changed your professional life?
0: I think it's a film that hopefully some people connect with and some people don't, you know, it's not genre enough for some people. It wasn't genre enough for some of the big festivals. And I feel really, and it was really hit by COVID and the, and the, it was actually a very painful process of not, not being, it hasn't had the recognition that I hoped it would have. And I'm so grateful to Shudder for picking it up and they love it. And they've been so supportive, but it's been hard. You know, I put five years of my life into it. It was a very long development process. It's so hard to raise money for independent film in this country. And, uh, I'd love to to have slightly taken off a little bit more. So I'm just, it's, it's really great when people do respond well to it. And it means a lot because it was such a large part of my life. And um, I just hope I get to make another film <laughs> in the not too distant future. Yeah. Because it's the, the first funded film I've ever made. You know, that's how ridiculously hard it's been. It's the, mm. the only funded film I've ever made.
2: Well, I mean, it's amazing work, and I feel like we've taken uh, quite a lot of your time here. So before we go, is there any place online where people can, uh, uh, obviously, I would encourage anyone listening to this, go check out Martyr's Lane, it's on Shudder. If you don't have Shudder, you can get it on uh, Prime. You, you have to sign up for Shudder, but you can get a, it, it's awesome, <laughs> it's worth it. So please check it out, but is there any other place online where people can see your, your directing work?
0: I think on Vimeo, I have my, my shorts from Vimeo, I think.
2: Oh cool. But do you have like an Instagram or Twitter? People have I, I'm
0: Ruthario one. P on on Instagram and Twitter. Ruthario P.
2: Well thank you again so much for coming on here. Congratulations on your film. I, I hope that it's just a slow burn and you'll people will start to uh, check it out over time. No, no, I, I think it's great work. And thanks for coming on the show.
0: Not at all. Pleasure. Thank you.
2: So that was Ruth Platt. Thanks again for coming on the show, Ruth. And uh, I can't wait to see what you have next. I really enjoyed her film.
1: And now, Short Ends.
3: Hey, Ben. It is uh, Short End time. You ready to dive into Short
2: Ends? I am. And, you know, as I said, my Short End, I think, is maybe a, a quick accounting of, and I'm sure that there are more that I'm not even aware of, of some of the ways to get the muzzle flash that you want in your in your movies, if you're using Airsoft guns or you're using replica guns, you could even I've even done it uh, on like sketch comedy stuff with toy guns. So there's several collections of muzzle flash that you can get that are stock that are pre-keyed, that are basically drag and drop. They're not going to get you all the way there depending on what you're doing. In some cases, they might get you all the way there. Um, the granddaddy of the mall was uh, Video Copilot's Action Essentials. Uh, there's another one that we've talked about on the show called Action VFX, and then one that somebody in my Twitter rant actually made me aware of at Blend That Film was the person who made me aware of it. Is that Red Giant, who's a big VFX company? They have one that I watched the demo of it. It's called Bang, and basically it's 3D, which I guess means it's for After Effects uh, modeller of muzzle flashes. And you can choose what kind of gun it is, and it makes a 3D gun that you line up with your gun so that it knows exactly where the muzzle is, the size of the muzzle, the direction of it, et cetera, et cetera. And you're able to model 3D muzzle flash. Pretty amazing stuff. I mean, like what I saw of it looked really good. And I would also direct everybody, which I did this in my Twitter rant as well, to a group that I, I have uh, talked about on the show before, which is Corridor Digital. Their YouTube channel is Quarter Crew, and they did, a, they did a thing where they felt that the muzzle flash in a specific scene in John Wick could be improved upon. And not only is it just entertaining because they're all kind of cool artists, types and they talk about it what they're talking about in in very interesting ways you know they explain every element that's in muzzle flash the the flash itself the bloom the smoke so it's sort of like the flash that you're seeing what it's doing to the lens how far the smoke should go that kind of stuff and they're pointing in john wick like frame by frame you're looking at muzzle flash and being like oh yeah yeah it wouldn't that doesn't look right when you Freeze frame it. You know, when you're watching a real time action scene, you're not really thinking about that stuff. But I think we're probably going to be thinking about the stuff more than we have in the past. And I would just encourage everyone to watch it because I just want people to know that nobody's saying don't make movies without guns. Actually, several people said this to me over the last several days. What if we just stop making movies with guns in them? And I'm like, A, I like movies with guns in them. B, good luck making people not want movies with guns in them. We're still going to have guns in movies. That's, you know, that's just life. You know, as certainly, long as audiences... Certainly American life. I mean, as long as... Well, yeah, I, I seem to recall this one British secret agent guy who's been in a bunch of semi-successful movies who really? seems to I, use I, gu- guns a bit. Um, <laughs> he, there wouldn't be a movie of his in the theater right now, would there be? Not at all. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of a worldwide thing. I, I'm not saying censor your movies. I'm saying there's a better solution. And honestly, you know, when I was working on Chosen... I was like, oh, my God, we can get so many more setups done like this. And also, I'm never afraid anyone's going to get hurt. Yeah. So I feel like I just want filmmakers to know that there's a multitude of amazing resources out there for them to accomplish this stuff and to accomplish it very safely and honestly, less expensively.
3: Yeah, for sure.
2: That's the end of my short end. Ilya, what is your short end this week?
3: My short end is actually somewhat controversial and it's 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 the movie dune i saw dune at the warner brothers lot in a fantastic really really loud screening room uh, which i think is the way that you should see it i know you you watched it at home and i think a lot of people watch it at home but it still made like 30 something million dollars at the box office so so good for them but what i think is is really interesting about dune you're you're of course talking about david lynch's dune from 1984. I am not talking about David Lynch's Dune. I'm talking about the new 2021 Dune, starring uh, Timothy Chalamet and uh, directed by
2: Denny Villeneuve. Uh, shot yeah. by friend of the show Greg Fraser, right. who could say nothing Greg about Frazier. Dune when we talked to him, and, and no matter how much I pry, tried to pry Dune
3: info out of him, I wanted I so, wanted
2: Dune uh, hot hot Dune skinny from him. wasn't gonna get it.
3: Well, you might remember that some number of weeks ago on the show, I was saying how my short end was this movie because of the trailer. I watched the trailer. I tried to block it out. I watched the trailer. I thought it was great. couldn't wait to see it. Wasn't going to watch anything else. And before I get into what I thought of the movie and why I think that it's 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 worthy for for talking about the short end here. uh, I think it's wonderful when I really like a polarizing movie and this movie is decidedly polarizing. If you look at the, if you just type in Dune review into Google, the top things that come up uh, run the whole gamut. For example, uh, The Guardian says that it is a sci-fi epic that gets off to an electrifying start. Hmm. The New Yorker says a dune sanded to dullness. Hmm. PR says sci-fi epic Dune is an immersive but incomplete experience. And this kind of goes on and on. You'll get I mean, people, it is incomplete uh, in that it's
2: only telling like the first half of the first book.
3: A hundred percent. And, you know, I heard lots of comments from people uh, because it's, you know, it's, it's available on HBO and the the comments have, have ranged a lot. Like, oh, well, you know, they ripped off Star Wars. And I, I got to remind everyone that this, like, like the book was originally written in, I think the mid sixties, like 65. yeah. So this, this intellectual property, this story exists long before there was, there was Star Wars and a lot of other things, but, but truly, uh, if you look at the David Lynch version, which I feel like is very much in opera, it doesn't have a lot of the perhaps uh, identification and development that you might like to have with some of the characters. And there's a lot crammed it in is there. Also, I, I watched it about
2: a month ago. The David Lynch mm. version, and I say this with all due respect to David Lynch, and I believe Freddie Francis shot that movie. Uh, mm. that, that movie is wall-to-wall exposition. Holy mm. crap, the
3: exposition never stops. And I, I feel like, Without spoiling this movie, because it's there's no spoilers really, since you're essentially seeing a, a reboot, a remake of the previous movie, there's, there's plenty of exposition and it hits a lot of the same notes. I think it does a much better job of completing some of the thoughts and completing some of the notes and doesn't feel so rushed and doesn't feel so exposition doesn't feel but if you were hoping for that save the cat moment which allows you to identify with Paul if you're if you were hoping to you know really get invested if you're that the type of person who who that sort of movie is for you and you're not there about the the opera and the spectacle and Hans Zimmer's uh you know soundtrack turned up to 11 for you know uh, three-fourths of the movie this is not going to be your cup of tea if you can enjoy the spectacle if you can go along with the opera if you can you know uh, yeah. buy into all of this stuff or you're a fan of the original the original story, I, I think that that Dune is going to be a great ride for you and if nothing else the work of Greg Frazier, the work mm-hmm. of uh, the production design the the work that goes into the costumes the effects the VFX you know this oh, is man. this everything is playing at the highest level here it's really really impressive it's a really impressive visual movie. And I'm going to watch it again, 100 percent going to watch it again. And I'll probably crank it up to 11 again because it is a it is a immersive experience, exactly like uh, NPR said. And uh, I think that might feel very complete after they release the next part. So (laughs) I
2: I actually might go see it in the theater like I just kind of out of curiosity after a day of chasing around a toddler. I was like, "Eh, let me watch a few minutes of Dune and see if it's see see if it's something I'm going to like. And uh, full disclosure here as far as denny villeneuve movies go loved arrival i liked sicario a lot i was not the world's biggest fan of blade runner 2049 it is gorgeous mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i found it to be um i feel like i liked this much better than than blade runner I, actually I, I, well yeah. yeah i me too i i felt like with blade runner i could have cut 45 minutes out of that movie without cutting a single shot it was like a lot of shoe leather like booming han zimmer music while people walked into rooms and looked at stuff and mm. and it and i and it was just people say that the original one is slow i don't believe the original blade runner is all that slow this no. it was it, it it was lugubrious to me and so <laughs> i kind of went to i wanted to watch the beginning of Doom to see like how that was going to play out and i agree with you no i i think it was captivating and interesting and if someone said it was a ripoff of star wars uh i mean i guess like all science fiction from that period maybe is a little similar my criticisms of it more were like i never never realized it but it i mean this is what the story is it's a white savior story you know it's yeah. it's, it's yeah, about 100%. a hundred percent a colonial yeah. <laughs> a person colonial who, power <laughs> who is a, who is a colonist coming in and saving the natives that that is that is what it is <laughs> Uh, and, and and taking all their oil. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant spice. Uh, spice. <laughs> um, what I liked about this one versus the David Lynch one is that like Kyle MacLachlan actually, you know, even though I think that might have been his first movie, he looks like he could kick your ass. He looks like a like a hale person who you know is in great shape and ready ready to be a hero. And Timothy Chalamet in this looks like a little kid. You know, he looks and they keep characters keep pointing it out to him you know that he's that he doesn't have that much muscle and whatever and so to me it's actually interesting to know that uh you know spoil alert for anyone who's never read the book or seen the original movie or knows nothing about dune he sort of becomes jesus (laughs) he sort of rises and becomes a savior and like you're seeing him as like not the strongest person but the visuals in the movie are pretty astonishing, and, and it's a movie that I don't know 100% I'm going to do this, mostly because of COVID, and secondarily because I have a three-year-old and I never get to do anything, but I might go check it out in the theater because the scope of it is pretty amazing, and I thought that, again, having recently rewatched the David Lynch one, that they were getting the same information across, but also making me like the characters, and I would say if it felt like anything to me, it felt like if Game of Thrones were science fiction.
3: Yes, very much so. I actually, I really found myself thinking of Game of Thrones several times during this. So. And I
2: mean that as a high compliment. A, a high a compliment. Game of, Game yeah, of Thrones, absolutely. not including the last season. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, like, <laughs> like the really, the cinematography, Greg Frazier's cinematography is just stunning in this and everything felt real. And, and I know that I'm looking at a scene full of like, you know, 80% of it is VFX creations. I buy them all like
3: it, it looks real. I I found myself almost wondering, though, a couple times when I was watching it, why isn't this 6 hours why isn't this a you know a, a an hbo series why isn't this like why didn't they they e- even give it more space to breathe they could have really gone into a lot of things and maybe maybe people would have had a different experience with it but you know re- regardless i like it on its own merits i like it for what it is i think that it's certainly worth watching especially if you are a fan of wonderful cinematography incredible oh, yeah. sound design incredible you know score just the way it all fits together and i got to you know i'm giving basically nothing away cuz it happens in the no joke. First second of the movie. Why did you think of that? Like a moose bouche, you know, before the title credit, before the, before the Warner brothers logo that, that happens before it, there's a, you know, it's on blank, it's on black. And then there's suddenly this, this voice that comes in, in a subtitle. Did that work for you, Ben? I'd never, I haven't seen another movie. I've never seen that. I've never seen anyone do that.
2: Um, it yeah. kind of took, it kind of caught me off guard because I was watching it on HBO max. And so mm. You know, it's like I'm, uh, you know, getting a drink and, you know, like basically uh, killing the time when those cards are usually up. And I was like, oh, I was supposed to be watching that. And so I had to
3: rewind it and watch it again Uh, in the theater I was in. Since it was a a PGA screening, there was no, uh, you know, opening trailers or anything like that. The lights basically went down and that. Note hit at a very very loud volume, and the woman in front of me literally like, jumped out of her seat a little bit. The and then of course the the logo comes up, and uh, I, I admit that I, I I said it out loud louder and then everyone around me <laughs> laughed um and then i gotta say that uh you after were, I, you were that guy i was that guy i was that guy i think it, i think it's it's sort of expected actually though at the at the industry screening so there's always like that guy who's got the And anyway regardless as we were leaving there, there was quite a few comments and it was interesting to hear people talking about their immediate reaction to it because these are all people who I'm going to say probably 98% of that room uh, subscribes to HBO probably. It seems like in the industry, everyone subscribes to all the services because they have to stay up with everything. But as we release, these are all people who chose, you know, this is after it had already debuted on HBO. They went to the theater. They wanted to see it. They wanted to have the theatrical experience. And, uh, yeah, you know, there, there was one snarky comment. Someone said, uh, yeah, I liked it better when it was called The Mandalorian. Mm. And, uh, and, and you know. <laughs> I mean, props, uh, props to Greg uh, Frazier props there, to too. Props to Greg Frazier, exactly. So, you know, also being, the, you know, the author of the visuals behind that. But uh, very different things. And I, I don't think that it's really fair that because something is sci-fi, no. it, it automatically gets I painted with think... the, the Star Wars brush. It automatically gets painted. Yeah, with yeah. I the, mean, just yeah. because they both have, like, science fiction in the desert. <laughs> It's, it's, it's true, nothing yeah. like the Mandalorian. It's really not. Uh, <laughs> it, it, but but you know this yeah. is this is what you know as a filmmaker. You this is what you run into. You this is what you run into the inevitable comparisons with everything that's come before. Oh and, yeah, uh, yeah yeah. I mean it's it, it there's nothing
2: you can do about it honestly. And uh, you know when you're working at the level that uh, Denny Villeneuve is working at, you know like you're gonna have obnoxious hipsters like me come and be like, Oh, I preferred the original blade runner. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> after you've spent, you know, probably three years of your life slaving over every frame of it to make it as perfect as you could make it. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's just kind of how it goes. I, I remember, uh, this is, this is a terrible comparison, but I remember when I, uh, I directed a production of Richard the third Shakespeare's Richard the third. And it was like, the reviews were not amazing. Uh, to say the least. And I realized not that I had made the best production of Richard III that has ever been made, but uh, I'm not even defending any, any part of my production, but like when you make something like that, you're going to get compared to every other, like they're going to be comparing you to, you know, the one that Ian McKellen was in and and the one Lawrence Olivier was in, you're, you're going to get compared to everything. So when you're Denny Villeneuve, and you're making something of this scope and scale and ambition, it's a very ambitious adaptation, you're gonna get raked over the coals about any giant science fiction movie that had desert scenes. And you know, it's right there in the title, Dune. You know, it's <laughs> sure. it's gonna, It's Arrakis is a desert planet. <laughs> and I really feel like it was a strong effort and I'm looking forward to the next part. And I was completely engaged and I thought the cast was just awesome. And the cinematography was amazing. And the VFX, like, you know, I, f- I feel like the thing about Denny Villeneuve movies is like every element put into it is so top shelf that, you know, you're kind of in a way judging how you feel about the top shelfness of th- of that thing. you You don't have to give it any willing suspension of disbelief and go like, oh, that, uh, you know, like, yeah, if I squint, that model looks like a real thing. Like it's going to look as real as the current technology can make it. And, uh, you know, his 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 work is very, very thoughtful. So uh, it, it was exciting to me because as I have ranted on here many a time, you know, I feel like genre movies don't always get the respect they deserve. And, and I, it's fun to see a genre movie made with such care.
3: Yeah. And I got to say that the cool flying dragonfly like things that they've got. Holy crap. Those are awesome. Amazing. Amazing. Cool cool. Amazing. Really, really, amazing cool. piece really of, nice touches. Just yeah, an amazing
2: really. piece of design, an amazing piece of visual effects, uh, an amazing part of the story, you know, that that doesn't feel like, hey, look what I can do. but It feels like it's hardwired into this world. I think it's uh,
3: definitely worth a look. Yeah, uh, for sure. All right, so Ben, we gotta thank some people, and uh, before we do that, though, where can people find you? where can Where can people get more Ben Rock? Uh, you can find me
2: at benrockonline.com dot com, and uh, apparently, you can find me on Twitter. Holy crap! Yeah. I've never had yes. a tweet. I've <laughs> never had a tweet blow up like that. It, I I, I kind of feel like I'm you know making dick and fart jokes all the time, and suddenly <laughs> suddenly I said something, and the world's like, hey, everybody, Let's listen pay to, to that guy. Hey, Reuters. <laughs> Although, uh, what was funny, actually, was when uh, uh, Sky News had me on, they were like, okay, because it's, it's Halloween, and everyone makes their Twitter handle, you know, uh, ho- horror-y related, so I had mm-hmm. changed it to Ben Rockula, not, not the most mm. original, unless you realize that Rocula was, like, a really cool uh, vampire musical that came out in, like, 1989, which I have seen, really? T- Thomas <laughs> Dolby is in it, true story, um, wow. and actually someone who, uh, totally coincidentally, uh, I know Dean Cameron is, I think, the lead in Rockula anyway Mm -hmm. so on sky news they were like they didn't say it on air but they when they got me on the phone they're like so ben rockula thank you for coming i'm like it's just rock it's just rock please please don't say rockula on the air i'm not ben rockula
3: um but (laughs) that would have been great if they introduced you as ben rockula (laughs) anyway in short uh you can find me at ben rock online Ilya, where can people find you uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com, uh, and uh, that's where I spend my Monday through Friday if you want to, uh, you know, uh, chew the fat, talk about lenses or cameras or lights, uh, That that's Something I do uh, basically all all week long, and uh, to a, to a wide variety of people. And if you can't get a hold of me, there's plenty of people in my shop who can who can certainly have those same conversations. But some people just want to talk to me for whatever reason. And I had a really great uh, meeting. Couple people came in, got shirts uh, last week. Nice. And uh, yeah, I mentioned the podcast. Uh, they they were in from the East Coast, and it was really nice. great to uh, to connect with them. Yeah, so it was fun. But also, we should throw a quick shout out here to uh, assemble.tv TV, uh, and definitely go to our YouTube channel and watch the the video on Assemble, if you uh, want to try this incredible productivity software for your production, specifically for productions and managing your productions, uh, you can use the promo code Cinepod and get a month free. You get to try it for free for a month, but then you use our code word Cinepod and then you get, a, you get a month free on us. So and It would be an the-
2: excellent way for you to share with all your collaborators various ways to simulate muzzle flash without using blanks. You could just like get the links and put them there and share them with everybody. You could even uh, do test footage and share the test footage with them
3: yeah a hundred percent uh let's thank some people let's thank uh case alatrachi case made all the music uh, that you heard in uh, today's episode uh and you know what maybe maybe he'll make us some some new music who knows maybe we should also maybe we should uh,
2: uh, interestingly case i know has seen dune twice and i believe Ooh. he saw one screening at the dga with mm. denny villeneuve afterwards being uh interviewed by christopher nolan so uh mm. And he's not in the directors guild, and I am. What's wrong with me? Why don't I go to these things anyway? I have a three year old. That's <laughs> well, why. Well, you
3: have a child. that, yeah, that that's why. Kind of. You know, you, you've, you've decided to to give up on the, uh, you know, the, the all of the things you used to do before kids.
2: The, the freewheeling going to Q and A's thing that I used to do a lot of. Anyway, but yeah, let's thank Kays. We should definitely thank Ben Katz, who uh, we're dumping seventeen uh, metric fuck tons of audio files on uh, today because our our rant about this. Uh, the, yeah. si- the situation on the movie rust. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's important to talk about.
3: Yeah, I, I I do, too. I think we'll need to be judicious going forward. But it's like it's it's a conversation that's not going away. It's very timely with the union negotiations going yeah. on right now. And as horrible as the situation is. Uh, if there's some, if there's some sort of profound change that can come from it, uh, it's not, it's not worth it, but necessarily it's, it's a silver lining that, uh, yeah. that could could possibly I mean, help other people and prevent this sort of thing from happening. That's again. all
2: it is It's a silver lining. It's a way that we don't, we don't lose other, uh, uh other people in More the future people. to, yeah. to a stupid thing we don't need to do. Senseless. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, lastly, we should thank uh, our producer, Alana Cody, who uh, was responsible for lining up this and all of our interviews. We have some really exciting ones coming up. I, I have uh, one on uh, Tuesday that I'm going to be doing that, that I'm very interested to, to get into. But Alana works uh, tirelessly to, to make this show awesome uh, and uh, to, to give us great people to talk to.
3: Yeah. Uh, and there's more great people coming up. So dear listeners, please keep uh, coming back to us. If you haven't subscribed, uh, please subscribe. And if you know anyone who you think might like this, uh, please tell them. We're we're not a big, you know, shouted from the rooftops kind of show. We're not taking out ads all over the place and saying, listen to us. So we rely a lot on word of mouth. If you um, if you feel like telling people that we exist, we, we really appreciate that. And if you want to come into Hot Rod Cameras and mention that you, you know, like the show, uh, there's a free t-shirt in it for you. I'll, I'll ha- gladly hand you a t-shirt.
2: And Ilya will personally hand you that T-shirt. You can demand if it. If I'm
3: there, a hundred percent, I'll hand I'll hand you, the T-shirt. He
2: so. will leave wherever he is, even if he's at Camera Image in Poland, and he'll come back and give you a T-shirt I, right then.
3: I, I, I'm not going to Camera Image this year, so there's <laughs> no chance of that. Uh, and anyway, I, I think that's
2: it. All right. Well, so. thank you very much, and we will see you next week at the podcast. Thanks for
3: listening.